We've been speaking for the last five weeks or so on the subject, salvation is of the Lord. And we started out speaking of this from the book of Jonah in which the mighty power of God to save Jonah and the people of Nineveh was described to us. Jonah teaches us that salvation belongs to the Lord. The only way men can know the things that God has given to us is by the work of the Holy Ghost. The natural man without the work of the Spirit does not receive the things of God. In fact, nobody can declare that Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Ghost. Jesus taught that it takes a special selective work by God upon a sinner before that sinner can trust in Christ unto salvation. The gift of faith is given to us by God by the powerful workings of the Holy Ghost in all the Lord's people. Lost men are naturally helpless to believe the gospel under their own steam, and yet in each of our believing hearts there was first a powerful work of the Holy Ghost to convert us. A large part of the miracle power of God in our salvation is displayed in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ to be our Redeemer. He was born of a virgin and is our Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah foretold these twin miracles about Messiah who came down to the earth to save His people. They are impossible events. Nobody can be born by a virgin. No man can be God manifest as a human being. Yet those are exactly the twin miracles that God promised to us through Isaiah. Isaiah also reported God's promise that a child would be born unto us and a son given to us. Those in themselves are no miracle. That happens all the time, doesn't it? But the names assigned to that child, that son, Wonderful Counselor, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, these are miracle characters in such a child, in such a son. But most astounding of all, that child, that son, would be the mighty God. How can a male child be God? How can God promise to do such an astounding and impossible thing as this? The promised son is a real human being like us, made like his brethren whom he would save, and yet he is God of very God at the same time. This is the repeated promise of Christ our Emmanuel, of God with us. These things are unheard of, outrageous, audacious, quite simply unbelievable. They are impossible, and yet they are a part of God's mighty power to save His poor lost people whom He loves. Paul underlined the true nature of Christ when he wrote that in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. How can a virgin-born man possess in his body the fullness of the Godhead? Prophet Micah foretold that Christ would be born in Bethlehem, but also added that His going forth was from everlasting. He is God, who alone is eternal, and His coming incarnate as a man was eternally planned. There never was a time in all eternity when Jesus was not going to be incarnate in our humanity as God Himself, the second person of the Trinity. In order to effect our salvation, God had to produce a perfect offering to be sacrificed in our place and for our crimes no animal and no mere mortal could ever do. Such a suitable and powerful offering would have to be deity clothed in our flesh, our kinsman redeemer, 
a perfect and sufficient sacrifice to take our place as our substitute in God's judgment for sin, to die for us, to save us. Christ had to be God manifest in human flesh, miraculously born of a virgin, or else we could never be saved and our sins could never be taken away. This inconceivable work of God's salvation could only be planned and purposed by God Himself. No man's scheme could ever hope to provide us a salvation. In other words, our salvation is impossible. In a way far beyond God's rescue of Jonah by a great fish. Great fish exist, and it is conceivable that a great fish could rescue Jonah. But God's salvation of sinners is outside the bounds of what we think of as possible. But with God, all things are possible. Therefore, along the way, God worked unspeakable miracles never thought of by mankind. Contrast that with how lost men think. They suppose they can be saved by things that they can do. Things that are in the realm of possibility. Sacrifices, good works, sacraments, rituals, even positive thinking. But all of our good works are filthy rags before a holy God. None of that can possibly take away our sin or please our God. All of man's salvation schemes involve doable things. But God demands impossible things, like obeying His law perfectly, which no man could do. This helps us to grasp the true nature of saving faith because the impossible nature of our salvation also makes it impossible for rebellious sinners to believe it. Ironically, as long as Jesus is seen as a mere moral teacher who urges moral duties that men can do, why then He is acceptable to the world. But it is the impossibility of it all that requires the miraculous gift of faith to believe it and to trust in Christ and His gospel. That is what makes the Christmas story so beautiful. God is working out the completely impossible presentation of His Lamb, and along the way, those who are a part of it, as God's instruments to bring it about, are given inexplicable faith by God to believe what is impossible to man. So when Joseph, Mary's husband, found her to be with child, he believed God's Word by the angel that her conception was by the Holy Ghost, and so did not fear to take her as his wife. What's more, Joseph believed the commandment of God that Mary's son would be the God that would save his people from their sins. All this was impossible to believe, yet God worked mightily in Joseph's heart to believe and obey. Likewise, Mary and her cousin Elizabeth believed the impossibility according to God's Word that Mary would conceive by the Holy Ghost, the Son of God, the Savior of His people. Finally, the shepherds in the field believed the angels when they told them of the birth of Christ the Savior. They believed the joyous promises made to them. They believed the incredible sign of a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger as humble and inauspicious as that sign was. They testified to these truths to their friends and neighbors, and they rejoiced at the glory of what they had seen and heard. The incarnation, as well as the imputation of our crimes upon Emmanuel, God manifest in the flesh, and His resurrection, all impossible and unbelievable, were carried out by the almighty power of God who did those things which are impossible to save His people 
We who have trusted in the Lord have been made to believe these impossible things that God, by His mighty arm of strength and power in Jesus Christ, has brought to pass. Our trust in God's Word and promise is far more miraculous than was the trust of the men of Nineveh in God's promise of judgment against them. And yet in each of our minds and hearts we have trusted in the Lord and cried out for mercy, and He has saved us. This ought to fill our hearts with great singing and unspeakable joy every day of the year. And so we come this Lord's Day to the sixth and final sermon in our series of messages on the subject, Salvation is of the Lord. We started out describing the mighty power of God to save Jonah from drowning in the sea and the far greater work done by God in the hearts of the wicked Nineveh so that they called upon God for mercy. Today we will have some concluding remarks of the miracle of faith given to us by God through the power of the Holy Ghost working in us. Christ Himself explains again why people believe on Him and why people don't. In John chapter 10, verse 22, we read, It was at Jerusalem, the Feast of the Dedication, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about Him and said unto Him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Notice that Jesus is describing to them how they do not believe Him. And notice that it is even in the face of miraculous signs. You know, Paul said in another place that the Jews require a sign, but he left off the fact that they don't believe the sign after they've required it and received it. And you remember that Jesus said to His followers in the parable of Lazarus and Dives, Father Abraham said to Dives in hell that your brethren would not believe even if a man rose from the grave to tell them the truth. And so we see that even though Christ is risen, and even though He did all those miracles, yet they still didn't believe. Apparently, Seeing isn't believing, is it? Seeing isn't believing after all. Then Jesus goes on to say these words, But ye believe not because ye are not My sheep, as I said unto you. Now He had already told them they weren't His sheep because they didn't follow Him. They were manifestly not His sheep. They were in rebellion against Him. But notice that He says ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Now this verse is all backwards in our minds. We would reverse what Jesus said. We would say that what Jesus really meant to say was, if you don't believe on me, you are not my sheep. But that's not what He says. He says, you don't believe on me because you're not my sheep. You see, Belief doesn't make us Christ's sheep as much as modern heretical preachers would like us to believe that. They would say, you can become Christ's sheep if you'll only trust in Him. That's not what Jesus is saying at all here. He's saying the exact opposite. People would say, believe the Gospel, follow Jesus, and then you will be His sheep. No, that's 
That order is reversed according to what Christ taught. Look again what He said. Ye do not believe because ye are not of My sheep. You see, it's the other way around from what men think. If you aren't My sheep, you cannot believe Me. You see, being the sheep of Christ comes before the believing on Christ. Sheep don't decide whose sheep they will be. Think about that. The sheep don't all stand in review of potential shepherds and say, no, 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 not that one, not that one. No, no, I don't like that one. No, I believe I'll follow that one there. That's not the way it works at all. And the people of Israel knew that. How many times in the Old Testament did God tell the people of Israel that you are the sheep of My pasture? And it makes it clear. This is by election. This is by God's choice, not them. They had nothing to do with being made the sheep of God's pasture. And Christ is taking up that metaphor here. If you aren't My sheep, you cannot believe in Me. Sheep don't decide whose sheep they will be. The owner of the sheep decides who will be their shepherd. God assigns a shepherd to His flock. Not the other way around. The flock doesn't pick the shepherd. God assigns a shepherd. Now Jesus makes clear who assigns the sheep to Him in verse 29. Look at what it says. My Father which gave them Me is greater than all. The Father gave the sheep to the Son. The sheep didn't give themselves to the Son. The sheep didn't opt into the flock of Christ. The Father gave the sheep to the Son. My Father gave them to Me, Jesus said. Because God gives to the Lord Jesus His sheep, therefore they believe. That's what Jesus is teaching. And if you don't believe, it means that you're not My sheep. It doesn't mean that you've decided not to be My sheep. It means that the Father didn't give you to be My sheep and therefore you don't believe. All that the Father gives Me shall come to Me, Christ had already taught. And them that come to Me, I'll in no wise cast out. Now the consequence of this, of being the sheep of Christ given by the Father, is verse 27. My sheep hear My voice and I know them and they follow Me. You see, obedience to the shepherd, hearing the shepherd as a shepherd, following him, believing on him, all those are the consequence of God giving us to Jesus to care for us and to save us and to keep us safe forever. And then at verse 28, and I give unto them eternal life. Here's the consequence of the Father giving us to Christ and of Christ receiving us as our shepherd, the result of which is we follow after Him and hear Him and obey Him. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of My hand. Before, Jesus already had described just how He would save His sheep, who, because they are His sheep, therefore they trust in Him and hear Him, and believe His promises, and follow Him. And what is the means by which Christ has already explained how He saves His sheep, how He gives them eternal life, how He ensures that they never perish, but shall come into everlasting life. No one can pluck them from His hands. Look at what He said earlier on in the text, verse 10 and 11 and subsequent. 
I am come that they might have life, that is the sheep, and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. We've remarked repeatedly in times past about how outrageous this is. Nobody ever expected a shepherd in the earthly realm to give his life for the sheep because all said and done, the shepherd was more valuable than the sheep. The sheep were mere animals, brute beasts. And the shepherd shouldn't unnecessarily endanger himself for the preservation of his sheep because the shepherd is more valuable. But no, the good shepherd, he gives his life for the sheep. He lays it down. Look at verse 14. I'm the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine as the Father knoweth me even so know I the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He says it again. And then at verse 17, Therefore doth my Father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. So it's very, very clear that Christ intends to lay down His life and die for the sake of His sheep that He might carry out what He describes a few verses later that He should save us and that He should not lose a single one of us but should raise us up at the last day. But we believe these things and trust in Jesus because God made us Christ's sheep. And it is the Holy Ghost that works in Christ's sheep to believe on Him, to hear Him, to follow Him. And because of that, Christ saves all His sheep which the Father has given he doesn't lose a single one of us. That's the promise that Christ made in several places during His gospel ministry. And then one final passage. After Jesus rose from the dead, plenty of His disciples didn't believe that He had risen at first. Now this is strange because Psalm 16 demands that Christ should be raised from the dead before He saw corruption. And Jesus had promised that He would rise again on multiple occasions. And yet the disciples' minds and hearts were blinded by grief and by terror at the prospect of the death of Christ, their Messiah. And they could not believe. And we suppose that we would have believed. We would have believed. In fact, we would have been so strong in our belief we would have staked out the tomb so we could see it happen but we wouldn't have. We wouldn't have. And part of this is because the Holy Spirit's work was not yet unleashed upon the people of God. And think of what this says about faith and how impossible it is for us to believe without the Holy Ghost's power in us. How impossible it is for us to believe that our Lord Jesus was raised from the grave. And so in John 20, Christ confronts the disciples with the truth that Christ is risen indeed from the grave, whether you believed it or not. John 20 at verse 19, that same day at evening, this is the day of the resurrection, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Other, other gospel writers 
describe that joy in a different way that said that they believed for fear and joy. They believed for fear and joy. This was such an astounding thing to them that they had never conceived of. And I'm sure that it was then and later that it came tumbling into their minds. But this is what He said He would do. Why didn't we believe Him? Why were we so overcome by fear and unbelief and dread and sorrow that we didn't believe Him? No doubt this was a lesson to them to not allow those sorts of feelings to interfere with the faith which the Lord gave to them. Here we see that they had been told by several eyewitnesses, but now they saw for themselves, and so they believed. And it seems like the resurrection is one of the hardest things for people to believe. But look at how Thomas reacted to the story. Thomas, this verse 24, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my fingers into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. So Thomas would not believe the testimony of those people who he had been with all those years as an apostle of the Lord Jesus, who wouldn't believe their testimony. I suppose he thought they were deluded or that they had all gone into some sort of a mass psychosis or whatever explanation he had. He knew that Jesus had died on the cross and he knew the conditions under which Christ had been crucified. And he wanted proof, wanted to see proof that it was really the body of Christ that had risen from the grave. And so he looked for those nail-scarred hands and that wounded side so that he could verify for his own unbelieving heart the truth of what they told him. But think about how impossible the resurrection is and how reasonable it was under the circumstances that Thomas should have not believed. In fact, have you ever noticed that Jesus, still having these wounds, still having that gaping gash in His side, He still shouldn't be alive. You can't just walk around with those sorts of wounds and be alive. And yet Christ was raised from the dead. You know, my dad has a doctor friend who left his church and became an agnostic when he took anatomy and dissected dead people and just decided that the resurrection is impossible. It just can't happen. It's inconceivable. But you see, he forgot that God is the one that gave every creature life to begin with. How dare you say that the resurrection is impossible at the hand of the mighty powerful Creator who made life out of dust and out of the breath of His nostrils. Whatever God made and gave life to, He can surely raise again from the grave. No matter how impossible it is for you or I to raise someone from the grave, it is, of course, the purpose of doctors to save lives, and yet in the end they lose every single one of their patients, don't they? And they can't raise people from the dead. And so this doctor friend of my dad's concluded the resurrection's impossible. But isn't it interesting that God saw fit to couple our salvation by faith in Christ's death in the place of sinners with Christ's resurrection? 
and His promise to raise up His people at the last day. All of these are intricately entwined with each other. The bar to faith in Christ includes that mighty leap that has to be made to believe the testimony of the eyewitnesses and to believe the promise of God and the promise of Christ that He did indeed and would indeed and did indeed rise again from a cruel death on Calvary's tree. And both of these things simply cannot be believed by the natural man. They cannot. They cannot be believed by Him. And yet, the Gospel includes not only the death of Christ as a substitute for our sins, but it also includes, does it not, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. We read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, this is Paul preaching, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and in which ye stand, by which also ye are saved. If ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present time, but some have fallen asleep. After that, He was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, He was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. So here Paul tells us that the Gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. What do the Scriptures say? They say that He died as our substitute. They say that He died in our place. They say that He bore our sins, that God laid our sins on Him, and God punished Him in death for our sins. That's what it means to say that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. And then it says that He was buried, that He rose again the third day, and He was seen of numerous witnesses, was He not? Notice that the resurrection is just as much a part of the Gospel as Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. There is in the Gospel the substitution of Christ in the place of sinners at the cross, and there is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. It is very important to realize that man will not believe in the substitution of Christ for sinners unless he also believes in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Why is that? Well, because the resurrection shows that Christ's substitution for us really took away our sin. That God was satisfied with Christ's death in our place and for our crimes. And that's why Christ rose again. He was set free from the judgment for our sins that were laid upon Him when God raised Him from the dead. And you know in Romans, we read it this morning, Paul says this, He was delivered for our offenses and He was raised on account of or because we are justified. The resurrection of Christ is the proof that by dying for us, He has taken away our sin and justified us. That is all who trust in Him unto salvation. And so Thomas couldn't believe 
the resurrection at first. He couldn't believe it, but Christ had mercy on him, didn't He? And showed it to him. Look at John 20 at verse 26. And after eight days again, the disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith He to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless, but believing. Now notice that faith in Thomas wasn't excluded by his previous unbelief. It wasn't even excluded by the presentation of proof by the Lord Jesus to Thomas. But you see, the belief of Thomas would extend to more than just the resurrection of Christ. That belief would go further still. How did Thomas answer Christ's challenge to him? Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. You see, Thomas, all in one fell swoop, believed the whole Gospel here. That he saw the resurrection. Everything else clicks into place. He knows that Christ is Lord. He knows that the man risen from the grave that he's looking at is his God, a very God. And everything else that he ever said or taught must also be true, perforce, because he is Thomas's God. But notice Jesus replied, verse 29, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. Now Jesus is talking about us here. He's talking about all the saints who believed, who've not laid eyes on the risen Lord. You see, we haven't seen the risen Christ with our own eyes, and yet we believe the Gospel. We believe what Christ taught. We believe what Christ did. We believe that Christ rose from the dead. And the question is, why? When most refuse to believe, because the Holy Ghost has wrought faith in us to believe, has opened our dead hearts to trust in Jesus' obedience and blood, shed for our crimes, to take away our sins, You see, when He says, blessed are those, when Jesus says, blessed are those, that doesn't mean that they're commended for their faith. It doesn't mean that Christ is patting us all on the back and congratulating us for our insight, our humility, our desire to believe, our laying hold by faith upon Him even though we haven't seen. No, no, no. That's not what He's saying at all. Blessed doesn't mean that we're being commended for our faith. Rather, God has blessed us to place our faith, to believe, to believe what lost men will not believe. That's why it says, blessed are those. God especially called them out and blessed them to cause them to believe, even though they haven't seen so that the excellency, think of this, that we are blessed in a way greater than Thomas, who saw and believed. For we have not seen and yet have believed. And so God's blessing is upon us in a sense more strongly than it was upon Thomas, although God blessed Thomas as well, so that he might believe. 
so that the excellency of what God did to us by His Spirit might be seen in us who walk by faith and not by sight. That we believe the Gospel because of the powerful working of the Spirit to grant us that belief. And so you see, we're walking around miracles of God's mighty power and love to save us because we have not seen and yet we have believed. And so we not only believe, but better yet, we love the Lord Jesus. So don't we? You remember Peter commented on this in his little epistle, 1 Peter chapter 1. He commented on the love of the saints for Jesus who have never seen Him. At verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice this begotten us, raised us up, you see, caused us to be born again. God did that to a living hope. That's the faith. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last day. Notice that God keeps us unto salvation by His power through faith. This is the maintaining of our faith by the power of God, the sustaining of it. This is how we persevere unto the end and to salvation at the last day. Because God's power maintains and upholds our faith unto salvation. Then he says in verse 6, In this ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold trials, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than the gold that perisheth. Notice that Peter describes that faith which has been invested in us by God's power. The faith is much more precious than gold that perisheth. Though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. So you see that part of the faith which Peter is talking about here, that God upholds and preserves through His power so that we might make it to the end believing on Jesus Christ. You see that the consequence of it is of our faith includes our belief that what we do not see now, what we do not grasp in our hands tangibly physically, one day we will come unto even so, that is the salvation of our souls, indeed of our bodies and souls, we're kept by the power of God through faith. Note well that faith that God gave to us and that God preserves in us to trust in Christ's sacrifice to the saving of our souls results in rejoicing and praise in us and love for the One who died to save us, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Reminded me of some verses of a hymn that we sing oftentimes written by William Featherston. My Jesus, I love Thee. I know that Thou art mine. 
For Thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art Thou. If ever I love Thee, my Jesus, tis now. I love Thee because Thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love Thee for wearing the thorns on Thy brow. If ever I love Thee, my Jesus, tis now. This is the love that Peter is describing that's in the hearts of the believers who have never seen the Lord Jesus with their own eyes. And they're blessed, like Jesus told us, blessed of God that we should believe and that this love should be manifest in our hearts, in our worship, in our songs. No doubt about it. Salvation is of the Lord first and last. Nothing in us contributes. It is all of God's mighty power to save us and to change us and to give us faith to trust in Him. Praise God. And so we come to the Lord's table where we once again recall what Jesus did for us and where love springs forth from our hearts and from our lips as we sing His praises and as we contemplate the death that He died to save His people. How He laid down His body on Calvary's tree it was torn and riven for us how He poured out His blood for the forgiveness of our sin so that we might be saved. I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. And the Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures, demonstrates to us the blood of the Lord Jesus that was shed for our forgiveness. O oh God, our Father, we rejoice in the goodness that You have shown us through Jesus Christ and that You sent Your Son to be Your Lamb to be slain to take away our sin and that He poured out His soul unto death and He shed His precious blood to make an atonement and a forgiveness for our iniquities which were laid upon Him. That You judged Him there on the cross for our crimes so that we might go free. We thank You that He left us this cup, the picture, the blood that He shed. Help us not to worship the cup or the bread, but rather to worship and adore the real body and blood of Christ which He surrendered up as a sacrifice and offering for our sin that we might understand that all of our hope and life rest in that body and blood that Christ brought in His body to be an atonement and a sacrifice to take away our sin, to satisfy the just demands of Your broken law in our place and on our behalf. We thank You that You have caused us to believe in the Gospel. We who would not believe because we could not believe that You have caused us to believe that You have blessed us with the faith to believe. Help us to cry out that You might bless our friends and our neighbors and family members, that they too might have that faith to believe, that we might see them brought in saving faith to the Lord Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped that He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant the New Testament in my blood for the forgiveness of sin. 
Do it as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Well, let's stand and sing in the Big Blue Book, number 332, My Jesus, I Love Thee. Look at that last verse. In mansions of glory and endless delight, I'll ever adore Thee in heaven so bright. I'll sing with the glittering crown on my brow if ever I love Thee, my Jesus, tis now. Number 332.